0: I recently talked to someone who has devoted her entire life to helping people die. Her name is Anne Coker. And can I ask, what does it mean to, ha- to have a beautiful death? Well, first of all, physically, you,
1: getting the balance of um, somebody being pain-free, mm-hmm. um, having relatives if possible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and, and for no distress to come to them mm-hmm. during the process.
0: Anne retired recently after more than 45 years as a palliative care nurse. Her career has spanned 10 nursing homes and hospices across the UK. She's a pro. Anne's daughter, Imogen Savage, recently wrote a very moving piece about her mother for the FT Weekend magazine. She's been watching her mother throughout her life. Imogen, what do you remember seeing and hearing about your mother's work? When you were growing up. I mean, I had this sense that you had this like real front row seat to the world of aging and death that like few of us ever have, much less young people.
2: Yeah. It was a a kind of privileged position. I remember just as a child going into these homes, it was always feeling a bit uncomfortable because it's not a kind of form of communication that you learn. You you feel that you need to mm. To communicate in a different way, and you don't, you're
0: never taught how to do that. And what is that form of communication? What's I, I think it's it? just,
2: it, it's, it's much less verbal. Mm-hmm. Y- you have to kind of present yourself as somebody who is without a guard, who's not threatening. Mm. Um, these are very mm-hmm. vulnerable people, and each one has uh, different needs and different uh, issues.
0: Imogen has been thinking a lot about her mother's career because nursing is kind of in crisis in Britain. Earlier this month, tens of thousands of nurses across the UK walked out to protest unfair pay. In December, there was the biggest nurse strike in NHS history. End-of-life care is just one part of this story, but it matters a lot because it's a place where cutting corners can happen in the extreme. We just don't like to talk about death. But today, we are going to talk about what it takes to give someone a beautiful death and why it's important that we try to. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Imogen and Anne, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. We are thrilled to have you both here because, uh, Imogen, you recently wrote a very moving piece for FT Weekend about your mother's career as a care nurse, which spanned 45 years. Is that right? Yeah, if
1: if not longer,
0: really. Longer than that, really, just over. Wow. Um, And it was a really very revealing insight into nursing and into caring for the elderly. And it asked big questions, at least for me, about like, how we deserve to spend the end of our lives. Yeah. And I'd love to start um just by asking Imogen, could you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write this piece?
2: Yeah, I think um I'd actually been thinking about writing it for a while. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, throughout my life, my my mum has always talked to me about her work and about the patients and about the other nurses and the carers. And and I've also spent time in the nursing home with her as well. So it's it's been a long time in the making. And I think something about the nursing strikes uh, set something off for me. And then I thought, I, I feel like I need to get this down.
0: Yeah. And how was it? What was it like to be interviewed about your career for three days by your daughter?
2: It was
1: um, quite emotional, really, um, because I haven't really s- sat down and thought the whole thing through. I mean, it was basically a huge part of my life. And and, and yet, you know, I'd, I'd kind of separated family from work. Mm-hmm. And then I suddenly felt like a person going through all of this because I was seeing it a little bit from her eyes too. Mm. I, I'd forgotten about the times that Imogen had come as well. And hmm. I remember being... I'm so proud of her, hmm. so proud of her, the way she worked and and how sensitive she was. And, and when I read the piece, I realized how sensitive she had been to, to, to my feelings and to the feelings of the people that I was looking after.
0: Anne began working as a nurse in the 1970s. Her brother was unwell growing up, so she was drawn to the act of caretaking. When she started training, at 20 years old, her first job was to bathe everyone in a 15-person ward. I mean,
1: there's no doubt in my mind that it's a sort of calling. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so uh, going into the most unpopular field of nursing that you could possibly go into, and the most poorly paid, <laughs> mm-hmm. it wasn't glamorous. It was, right. it was really very basic, but I knew that I could make a difference within that field.
0: The work was hard over the years. Anne treated people who were scared and vulnerable and often couldn't communicate. And Imogen, as a child watching her mother work, saw a lot. She remembers one story of being young and waiting for her mother to finish a shift. There was a bit of a
2: kerfuffle at the the end of the corridor and a lot of people around and I I went into the room and it was it was a kind of it was a bizarre experience. There was something, there was something strange in the air, and I think the the vibe was a little bit panicky, but also that everybody had to remain calm. Um, and the room was sort of lit with this peach glow, and I remember it vividly. I, I remember wanting to stay in the room because I wanted to know what was going on. Um, and then I was ushered out. So I knew that there was somebody dying in there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then my mum came out and um afterwards she I'd asked I asked her what was happening, and she said it was somebody dying and that it had been a beautiful death. Um, which mm. obviously made me think about the different ways of dying.
0: Yeah that there are different ways. A major part of Anne's job was to make people feel at ease and to make them feel like human beings. That could mean making porridge for an old lady who liked it a certain way or noticing the family photos on someone's bedside so that she got a sense of their lives. She would use whatever little details she could to understand them. And that was so that she could anticipate their needs as they started to get less communicative and closer to death is a sort of intuitive thing Mm -hmm. where you you can tell so much from a person just by the
1: way they move and the way they and then ask some questions about things sometimes people are a closed book sometimes people you know just allow you little bits about how much they want you to do for them how much they need you to physically do things for them and so on how independent they are and everything I think it's just years and years of experience and being able to be flexible Mm-hmm. Um, and and also to spend time at the beginning with a person, so mm-hmm. that you can get to know as much information.
0: Yeah, it's a very nuanced thing. Yeah, it, it, it is. To but have it is,
1: and some people intuition. actually don't don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. that I worked with carers who are just remarkable, mm-hmm. and with nurses. Um, but some, it was just a job, and you know, those things didn't really
0: matter. Anne says that the most difficult caretaking is caring for people with dementia. You do the same thing over and over while your patient just becomes less cooperative and sometimes downright violent. In general, she understands that this work can burn nurses out. But she also strongly believes that when there's enough support, a good death for almost any patient is possible. There's one patient that she remembers vividly. It was an old lady who was on morphine and hallucinating. She seemed out of it. And her son was really worried about it. So he went to find Anne to help him. Anne went into the room. She was really happy.
1: (laughs) She had no pain. And all of these people that she knew, Mm -hmm. that she thought were coming to get her, or, you know, that she was was seeing these people. It was quite bizarre, really. Mm -hmm. And there were many instances that made me think, well, my goodness, that's that's strange when somebody was about to die and they would see so vividly mm. their wife or, the, you know, somebody there for them. Um, anyway, she was seeing all these beautiful people in her room and she was very, very happy. And I said, well, she's not quite ready yet. But she's got all these people to see and so on. Then he kind oh. of calmed down. Then he understood. Yeah. That Then she got tired. And of course, then she did... She did pass away very peacefully. And that was a very beautiful death (laughs) Mm. because she'd had a party in the room.
0: (laughs) But this kind of work where you take time and lean into the experience of the person who's dying, it's getting harder. Because palliative care is becoming a profit led business and one that private equity firms are investing billions of dollars into. So budgets are getting cut. And studies show that the quality of these homes are getting worse. There are higher mortality rates, fewer caregivers. The system of financing
2: homes is not necessarily always based on the needs of the patients. There's a kind of divide there. Mm -hmm. And if if they're owned by private companies, backed by private equity, and the companies go bust, then the homes have to close.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying, I mean... Elder care has sort of become a business, right? That it's it's being privatized across Europe. Um, many are now owned or funded by private equity funds because they see sort of a business opportunity here. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and you're saying that often, if it doesn't make sense financially, then homes will close and nothing will replace them. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about that?
1: Well, I, I know that people that people have to put money, they invest their money into something. Mm -hmm. So they invest because they want to get a return on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I noticed was that when a big company came, took over the the place, it was then all about budgets. Mm -hmm. And I remember them asking asking me in one home if we could clean the carpets at night Mm -hmm. on the corridors in a dementia unit. Mm -hmm. I said, no, we can't do that. There was enough chaos going on that was really to save money, that mm-hmm. the night staff would do that. And then uh, what really annoyed me was that, you know, this was going to finance in, people in champagne and swimming pools. And, and we were like flogging our guts out to do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas really what we wanted was to get to give good
2: care. And that's just the business model. I mean, they have to yeah. get returns and, and they do that by, by cutting staff.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. if somebody went off sick, we were told to use the cleaner for that shift, not to call anybody in. You know, it was all about saving money because the people in the office were under pressure because these are profit-making companies. They had to make profit year in, year out. How Mm. do you do that in a nursing home? And it was always us that suffered. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was the residents who suffered. This shouldn't be how care is run. Mm.
2: No, it's a yeah. ludicrous model for financing the the care of the most vulnerable people in our society. Yeah. My mum yeah. told me many examples of people dying alone simply because there weren't enough staff on. Mm-hmm. I and mean, this shouldn't happen.
0: Mm, yeah. And you just retired after these nursing strikes began. I'm curious what it's been like to watch them.
1: Yeah, I I can understand how um frustrated, uh, nurses are and carers, carers, I mean, really and truly the, the, how hard they work for such little money.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and,
1: but it was net, it's never about the money. I mean, nobody ever really talked about the money. They talked about the fact that there wasn't enough of them to do the work mm-hmm. and that they were under so much pressure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I think that, 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 was quite that's quite often the frustration. And then to think that you're being, you know, you're so undervalued mm-hmm. for what you do. I can understand that completely because this is such an important part of life is death, you know. Yeah. And it's, you know, caring for people who are sick and dying is so undervalued. When I had nurses in food banks and, I mean, I remember my own struggles financially for such an important job, it was just, I I think it's just so unfair, really. And that you can tell a society by how they value the caring jobs and teaching and so on. Yeah.
0: I guess big picture, Imogen, like, you know, from your mother's story, like, what do you want us thinking about?
2: Well, I mean, uh, if if I could dream big, it would be to rethink how we... Finance, end-of-life care,
0: mm-hmm.
2: how we value nursing and care work, and how we support nurses and carers to do their work. One of the things I, I wanted to convey was also that what's happening in nursing homes is something really remarkable and beautiful, yeah that people don't normally get to see. And you know, there's a whole world in there that, that sort of functions in a different way that you you have to learn the skills to to communicate differently. And yeah, when you do, it's really a it's a remarkable thing to experience. Yeah. And I yeah. I wish that we had more interaction with the with the elderly, especially those at the end of their lives. Um, that would be a wonderful thing, but it's it's not that's just not the way our society is set up.
0: Imogen and Anne, uh, thank you both for uh, your time and your uh, work and um, yeah this is a real honor. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you for giving us the time to speak about it as well.
0: That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the life and arts podcast of the Financial Times. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to a great discount on an FT subscription. That's also at ft.com slash weekend podcast. There's also a link in there for discounted tickets to the second annual US FT Weekend Festival. It's in Washington, D.C. on May 20th. As you know, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod, And I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I post a ton of behind-the-scenes stuff about the show and love talking to you guys on my Instagram. And finally, a request. The greatest gift you could give us, which is to share the show. Send it to a few friends that you think would like it. Post about it on your Instagram or Twitter if there's an episode you really love. Or extra credit, you could go to Apple or Spotify and write us a review. That really helps the show, and it means a lot. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my incredible team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are the great Breen Turner and Sam Jovinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have the best weekend, and we'll find each other again next week.